Hi, this is Matt, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who loves bluegrass. Hey everybody, welcome back. This is part two of the Clarence White tribute episode. If you didn't hear part one, go back and have a listen. That has David Greer and Alan Mundy in it, and that was yeah, a couple of fascinating conversations about Clarence from people who knew him. Um, and play music with him and part two is four more interviews that I put together for this uh, and we're going to chat first off to Russ Barenberg who, uh, one of my favourite guitarists um, but was very inspired by Clarence and did a transcription of some of his stuff for a book um, and yeah, just really interesting interview with Russ and then we're going to talk to Diane Bowsker who was Roland White's wife she spent a lot of time with Roland transcribing both Roland's music and also working um, in a lot of detail on the book of transcriptions of Clarence's that came out, and she's going to chat about that, and that was really interesting, along with some just some lovely personal insight from Diane. Um, that was a lovely conversation to have. Um, followed by a chat with Michael Daves, who is always interesting about pretty much anything to do with acoustic music. Um, yeah, talking about the influence Clarence had on him and just how special Clarence was. Um, and finishing off with a chat with Tim Stafford, um, about Clarence and obviously you know Clarence was a huge influence on Tony and Tim knows a lot about Tony um, and it's always a joy to talk to Tim so this is what you've got coming up in this episode um, we're going to kick off with my chat with Russ Barenberg uh, yeah the first time I spoke to Russ which was a real treat for me um, so yeah here comes Russ Barenberg I I first heard him when I was just you know probably just six months or so after I started playing the guitar and uh I don't know exactly. I, I was, took some lessons from a guy who had sort of gotten into the folk scene back then around 1960. This was like 1964. And uh, Appalachian Swing had just come out. And so I got the record and it just, you know, it was magic to my ears. Uh, and, you know, at that time, I picked stuff up, you know, from his playing. But... Um, you know, it wasn't until about 10 years or more than 10 years later when I wrote that book that I, that I really started trying to figure, you know, transcribe them exactly. Um, I did pick up a lot just in terms of the general spirit and, and try, I was imitating his solos when I was 14 years old or so. And, um, you know, he was, I was, you know, Doc Watson, a lot of people knew him. About him, and I already heard him play. But when I heard Clarence, it was clear he, um, you know, it was like sort of this brand new sound back then, and and still is a brand new sound because nobody plays like him, and no, and well, nobody plays like anybody else really. Although it's it is sometimes somewhat common. I think Tony Rice was imitated a lot, um, but um, and that's really you know. There, certain recordings hit you at a certain time, and I think when you're that age, you, they're they're like more magical than if if I would have heard it later. Although not to say that that diminishes anything about his playing at all, but it was, um, you know, I, I just like the energy of it. It's like he's always sort of exploding out of the gate, and um, and of course his he was. He, he was very original and experimental at the, at the time. He, he basically, he developed his own language and it was clearly something that 
didn't exist before. And it has a lot to do with the syncopation and just the, uh, the uh, creativity and, and invention of the way he played. It was just, he was obviously very young, was deeply into just playing his own way. Um, so yeah, what it really, what really, I think, if anything, it, what I picked up on was that I just loved how kind of original it was. And, uh, and that it, it made me want to just kind of find my own way of playing, N not necessarily being another Clarence White, but, but I, uh, you know, definitely aspects of his music and his way of playing affected mine and still do. But, um, but that was the important thing. It's just, well, this guy is just himself and he's unique and, um, yeah, that's and it's, sorry, I was going to say you mentioned sort of Tony being imitated and there's a lot of, um, so much bluegrass guitar involves sort of lick based stuff. And when I first heard Clarence, it was so clear. It was much more sort of centered around the melody and uh, mm -hmm. the improvisation came from playing with the tune and with the rhythm that was there already more than yeah. like putting something else on top of it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he paid attention to the tunes in everything he played and uh, and he was able to improvise doing that and i i think that's something that was that rubbed off on me too because I, I the way i play it in that respect it's i don't play sort of a riff based kind of style it's more um how you express the melody and in a, in your own way uh so yeah i agree with you definitely and that's one of the things that I first noticed about your playing when I first started listening, um, particularly with some of the transatlantic session stuff, which is a lot of tunes played. It's this idea that you can improvise by changing the tune a bit, rephrasing something, changing the odd note, putting a different phrase here and there. Whereas I had it in my head at that point that a solo meant you just improvise something over the chord changes. And actually hearing people just slightly turn the melody so you hear it from a different angle is yeah. equally as powerful. Uh, I think it's more powerful. Uh, yeah, it's a matter of really if you approach soloing as a, as an embellishment of the melody or as a slight reinvention of it, um, it's a strong. It's a, it's actually a stronger and more varied kind of soloing. And I, I sort of had no choice when I was, you know, developing my own playing because I didn't feel like I could improvise anything good enough that it satisfied me. So I started out um, by composing solos when I was put in a situation where I knew um, I wanted to not just play something I heard Doc Watson play or re rehash something. So I just uh, composed things a lot. And after doing that for a while, then I started to get a little more confidence in improvising because I had developed my skills at, in terms of hearing and embellishing melodies. Um, and so, and it's still, I still am sort of feel like I hesitate. Sometimes I'll, I'll be soloing and I'll, and I'll sort of lose my train of thought because I want to go back and make that last thing better. You know, I heard, ah, it should have been this kind of thing. And um, so, yeah, that compositional part of it is 
deep in me <laughs> for better or for worse. Um, but yeah, I mean, Clarence based his stuff, you know, to a large extent on the, on the melody of the particular song. And I think that leads to, uh, to a much more varied kind of playing because the other approach, you're just putting the same stuff over this, you know, yeah, the chord changes might be different, but eventually you're just re kind of playing the same thing all the time. Yeah, and that this sort of you mentioned the syncopation, but also the cross picking, which is a big feature of Clarence's playing. And if you apply those two things to a melody, you've sort of got infinite scope for improvisation just by changing where the beat falls, or just by stretching a phrase across the bar line. Or yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, the cross picking came, you know, I believe from kind of wanting to imitate. Scruggs style banjo playing uh, and on various instruments. Jesse McReynolds did it on the mandolin and Clarence did it. And, you know, when the t at the time I wrote that book, I had never seen him play because I never met him and, and I had never, there weren't videos available of him playing. So I was sort of guessing how he did it. But what I didn't guess and what I think is true now after seeing some of those videos is that there's in some cases where I think he was doing it with the pick and two fingers rather than all with the flat. Very much like banjo playing. Um, I could be wrong, but. Uh, yeah, and there's a little bit in that video. There's a, a masterclass on YouTube with Bob Baxter sort of asking him how he plays. And he, mm -hmm. he does a little bit of that where you hear, because a lot of people when they do that sort of hybrid picking, it's more to replace finger picking patterns and it's not playing melodically it's more about sort of trying to replace but it's interesting because he does use it melodically doesn't he well you you weave melodies into it that's kind of what bluegrass banjo is mm. you know you hear the melody coming out of bluegrass banjo playing and uh and likewise out of his guitar playing and out of jesse mcgrannell's mandolin playing so yeah it's an it's another way of and you're right, it naturally throws stuff uh, off the beat and into syncopation because it's basic, it's more or less a three-note pattern over a four-note rhythm. Mm. So it tends to emphasize offbeats. And it's astonishing, sort of, you talk about um, the thing that impressed you most was almost how unique a style he had and he developed. And he was so young when that record was recorded to have mm -hmm. sort of formed a musical voice that sort of intriguing and arresting yeah. in his teens. Yeah. Just his way of doing it. It's sort of, mm. that's just what came out when he put a guitar in his hand, you know. He, it's all about curiosity, you know. He just, what can I do with this? You can sort of hear it. I remember the first time I heard some of those um, tunes, the sort of 33 fiddle tunes that he recorded, and you just hear him syncopating things and you can actually hear him playing with the material like not just playing you the material and making some decisions he's made previously but you can hear him just going i wonder how long mm -hmm. i could take this pattern on for or i wonder what happens if i do this or and it's it's that playfulness that makes it for me like and i didn't hear it obviously back then but it's what makes it so kind of alive now yeah. you know absolutely that's a good way of putting it yeah I agree. It's the the phrase that I think I think it's a John Hartford phrase about don't just play the music, play with the music. And you know, uh, I hadn't heard that one. But yeah, I mean, it's 
most good musicians have just a, what's really exciting is discovering things. And you can definitely hear that in, in his playing. Because the excitement was built in. He obviously was having a great time doing it. You can feel it. Was there anything when you sort of sat down to transcribe the stuff for the book, was there anything that surprised you when you got into the detail? Was there anything you learned doing that? Well, I just learned more detail about what he played. Um, nothing, you know, because I'd listened to it. I'd heard it at that point for a good portion of my life, my young life. And uh, so I was pretty familiar with the sounds. I, I mean, a lot of that stuff on on Appalachian Swing was just etched in my mind, even though I, I didn't know exactly note by note what he was doing, but I, it was there. Um, so I don't, I wouldn't say that, that doing the book led to more discoveries other than understanding a little more thoroughly what he was doing, trying to anyway. One of the, I think that's one of the, one of the, the sort of saddest things about using, losing a musician young is you always, all those questions about where that would have gone and what he would have done later. And there's so few examples for us to sort of dig into compared to a lot of people. Uh, yeah, that that that's true. I mean, he lived to 27, I believe, right? Um, and, you know, a lot of times by that age, you, particularly with people that are, are really good and creative, that you can hear what they're about. <laughs> you mm. know, there may be some, after that, some changes to the specifics of it, but I don't think you know, you'd recognize him in a similar way, I think, no matter how much further he took it. I could be wrong. I mean, he was already kind of getting away from playing acoustic guitar anyway um, for several years before that, when he was mostly playing with the electric, with the birds and all that. Hmm. So so I'm not sure, how, you know, what would have happened with his acoustic playing or bluegrass playing or whether he even would have continued playing bluegrass. Who knows? Yeah, and you hear that sort of the live in Sweden recording from '73, from not long before he passed, and you know the I, I read somewhere that he was slightly nervous about doing that tour because he wasn't sure if he had the chops to do it still after playing electric guitar for so long, like what it'd be like to just play like that again. Mm. But that's uh, such a good recording. I hadn't heard that. Um, I, I don't know where that came from. Maybe from Roland. Um, but yeah, I mean acoustic guitars. <laughs> It just takes more strength and, you know, it's a different kind of muscle, force of muscle that goes into it. And I can see if you're not doing it for a while, you, it takes a while to ramp up. Um, I hadn't heard that. Uh, yeah. I mean, for me, the Appalachian Swing was it. Everything is there. I hear all these, you know, these surface tapes since then. And, yeah, they sound good, but they, they're not recorded as well. And they're him by himself which is, you know, fun to hear. But I think the, the most exciting playing is on that record. For and there's me. something about hearing him respond to other musicians that you don't get when he's playing on his own, because his rhythm playing is also, like, extraordinary. Um, it is. Particularly for such a young player. Yeah. On, on Appalachian Swing, you can hear he's sort of warming up on his next solo during the rhythm playing. While Roland's playing, he's starting to play, really, like a solo almost beneath it. And then you hear him come out and play some of the stuff he just played behind Roland in the solo. So I think it's like he's like, get this 
here it comes, here it comes, boom. You know, he jumps out of the gate like a racehorse. It's like getting the energy built up ready so he can take over warm <laughs> rather than just jumping in. <laughs> it seems like it, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. a cool part of that record, about that particular record. Yeah, and it is really interesting with that and with and with the solos, just that that sense of he's one of the he's one of the players that from their lead playing, if you walked into the room and he was playing over nobody backing him up, you would know what the tune was based on the solo he oh, was yeah. taking. And that's you know, that's not always the case. Yeah, I mean, most uh, you know most of the good musicians I know do that uh, in their own way. Uh, I wouldn't say it's not always the case. It's not always. It's not often the case among amateur players, but because they all want to kind of improvise before they've really built the the correct kind of background to do it well, and looking for shortcuts. But I think a lot of good musicians, if they're just sitting down playing a tune. You do the Next up is my chat with Diane Basker, who was married to Roland White, spent a lot of time sort of uh, listening to working on transcribing Roland's playing as well as Clarence's playing, um, put together a book about Clarence's playing. Um, yeah, really, really lovely chat. We talk about that book in quite a lot of detail. We also chat a bit just about her time around the White family and just some lovely little anecdotes and you know, um, it was a joy getting to chat to Diane. I really enjoyed this one. And uh, thanks so much to her for taking the time to get involved. Um, here comes Diane Basker. I had been transcribing Earl Scruggs, Sonny Osborne, and other banjo players and, and whatever else, you know, some guitar playing from way back in the 70s. And so uh, <clears throat> in 2000, um, I... Um, made a book of Roland's playing, presenting his approach to playing bluegrass mandolin. And um, that went really well. And, uh, you know, I was pretty intimately familiar with how Roland played. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it just knowing it was out there and, you know, the only book on Clarence's playing was Russ Berenberg's, and it was a great book, but it was hard to get. You know, it wasn't reprinted back then. Uh, it hadn't been reprinted until, you know, much more recently. It wasn't available. So um, we just decided to put one out. And for a while, uh, you know, Steve Pottier had, had transcribed a lot of Clarence's playing and written columns on his playing for Flat Picking Guitar Magazine. So he seemed like uh, a person that could definitely help and... Uh, Matt Flinner was here locally. Uh, Steve is in California, and we're in Nashville, Tennessee. Matt Flinner also lives in Nashville, Tennessee, and he's he had uh, been, uh, you know, I, I guess we knew of his abilities to transcribe. He's also a guitar player as well as a, a great mandolin player. So anyway, I engaged him to transcribe quite a few of those 33 instrumentals that Clarence had made as a you know, just a home tape on the wall and sack reel to reel tape recorder uh, for his students at the time. And uh, so Matt transcribed a bunch of those. Um, and Roland and Steve talked for over a period of years, but they really didn't ever get started on the project. So I finally got involved 
And uh, I mean, I was going to publish it, but I thought they could, you know, get the project going and start the transcriptions, all that. And they already had what Matt had done. And uh, so anyway, we sent that to Steve, what Matt had done. And um, he listened, retranscribed things that he heard differently, and he transcribed some more tunes. And uh, then, and this is happening over a period of years because mm-hmm. some things happened in between that didn't allow us to give the full time t- attention to it. But uh, you know, the concept was basically the same as what we had done for Roland's book, which was to put some biography. Because I have always uh, enjoyed music instruction books. You know, for instance, jazz guitar books that tell you about the person. You know the the artists that you so admire, you'd like to know something about their life, and it, it really makes the the teaching more present and personal and intimate when you have the voice of that person, not just their notes on on the paper. You know, yeah. uh, pictures help. <laughs> so uh, we had a lot of great uh, feedback on the one we did about about Roland's playing. So uh, kind of employed the same approach. Start out with some. Uh, biographical information and and in that we you know basically told the story of the white family coming to southern california and landing right in the middle of this wonderful burgeoning country music scene um so they just hit it at the time that you know so much was happening so many great players there and there were a lot of live shows and dances and you know just a a really active and lively music scene and new music being made. And uh, those all those performers were really welcoming to the White brothers and sister. <laughs> Joanne hmm. also played and sang with them for a time. So, uh, you know, that story we told more of, of how they, you know, became professional musicians and, started their bluegrass career and of course with a with a focus on Clarence but you know the whole story I wanted to tell the whole story so to acquire that I I solicited Roland to write down you know whatever memories stories he could think of and then I took those notes and interrogated him because you know to to fill it all out and answer questions and what about this episode? Didn't you once say that such and such happened? And how did Clarence do this or that? And why did he, uh, why was his voice so low? And things like that. And just anything, you know, I could think of to fill out the story. So I queried him and acquired more information and sometimes through research and um, put together the biography part of it, uh, trying to maintain the sound of Roland's voice. Um, he didn't write me any whole sentences, but mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I got the story by interrogation and and saying, now, isn't this how it would be? And he would say yes or no, and then we go from there. So we put that together. I put it together with pictures and laid it all out. And uh, meanwhile, I got transcriptions and some commentary back from Steve and um, I was listening. I had resolved that he would be the expert on the guitar stuff because, you know, I although I do a little flat picking, or I had been, I don't really anymore, but I was never, you know, 
good enough to do it with people in a band or anything like that. I just, you know, for jamming or for my own pleasure, played a little flat picking guitar, but, you know, do not consider myself an authority. Uh, and so I, Steve transcribed or retranscribed some of Matt's stuff and added to it. And there, a lot of Matt's original transcription is there intact as well. And I really, at that, that point about um, the biographical stuff, I find that really interesting because not only is it about who the person was, it's also about where in their life and their career they were at that point. And exactly. Particularly these... and, and, you know, the scene, the scene, I mean, that's a an un, unindicted co-conspirator in the whole story because, you know, that they um, – the fact that they landed where they did enabled so much to happen, and there was so much music for them to hear and learn. And I did ask Roland, you know, did they ever, like Joe Mafis and uh, Rosalie Mafis took took a lot of interest in them and supported them. A lot of those people were, all those people were very supportive, all the performers on those shows. They were encouraging and supportive of them. And I asked him, did anyone ever, you know, actually show you things on your instrument? And they said, no, you just had to watch, you know, you had to watch and learn carefully. Um, they would, you know, they, but they never purposely were taught by these folks. They just went and listened to them and hung around and jammed sometimes. So, uh, and I think that's the way it used to be. You know, people didn't teach us explicitly. <laughs> you, you, and I, and one, one thing that I think is probably true because of that, because there wasn't YouTube or, you know, the easy availability of teachers, uh, you had to have the perception and the memory the first time around. You know, you see somebody and you can memorize what they did. I, I think yeah. we've lost some of our powers of observation and memory, at, you know, if we watch a person do that in, instead of uh, – getting it all immediately we we resolve to get a recording of them sometime <laughs> you know or you know i'm i'm going to go home and listen to the record and see what he did um but i think they had a lot better powers of observation uh, and maybe it had to do with their natural talent as well but they they didn't get taught explicitly they just you know uh, roland's dad showed them some chords they had uncles that played the guitar and and uh, piano and aunts and they showed them, you know, some chords, but nobody really taught them how to play. They they seem to have developed that just by observing and listening. And that's really interesting, yeah. That that skill at Go ahead. Oh sorry, no. I was just gonna say that skill of listening is something that really separates sort of exceptional musicians from yeah. Everybody else is. It's yeah. not just about what you play. It's about how you play with other people. Yeah, and and in you know they listen to a lot of radio. They listen to um, a lot of other types of music. They listen to Mexican music that was coming over the radio, and the you know they had previously listened to all the pop music on the radio when they were in Maine. Their mother collected a lot of country and pop records. And so, you know, they, they were exposed to a broad range of musical styles, and and they I think they took from all of it. But anyway, back to the book. Um, so the transcriptions, I got them from Steve, and I listened and 
started following along and I thought, wait a minute, I think that I think that slide came from the third fret, not the second fret. It's just little things that I thought I heard. So I went over the whole thing too and I did make a few changes and not which is not to criticize Steve's transcription. I mean sometimes you just hear things differently. But I I uh gave it all a final uh and I transcribed some more sections that I wanted to to have in there. Um, I chose the songs because I chose the ones that are public domain and we wouldn't have any trouble uh, publishing because I had learned previously that it's sometimes hard to get publishers to give you print permission. Mm. So um, we chose all public domain and some of them are claimed by, by like, you know, Carter family claimed AP Carter claimed wildwood flower, but actually that there's evidence of that song in the 19th century and it's re it's really interesting because so much of like bluegrass and old time music, people think that all the tunes are public domain, and so much of it was composed by a particular fiddle player or a you know. So it is quite a, a thorny subject material, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and you know sometimes uh, the copyright has expired, even if it was originally cop uh, copyright. I think that's the case with Farewell Blues. Um, you know, and that's why you'll see the names of the composers in there, but they've gone to public domain because it was long enough ago that the copyright expired. So I put my final touches on the transcriptions and added some. I I used the amazing slow downer, which you've got to be careful with slowing things down because it introduces artifacts. I'm sure you know that. You yeah. Probably had that experience, and then then you've got other questions in your mind. You know, like which string did, was that played on? Because it sounds thunkier than it did when you, when it wasn't slowed down. <laughs> yeah, totally. I have had a lot of experience using that, so I know what can happen. And you know, while I was, any questions that I had during the transcription, I would take them to Roland. And I think one benefit, even though I had not transcribed more than one or two of Clarence's songs before, I've had transcribed a lot of Roland's playing and really their hands work exactly the same. And, and if you look at their hands, they're, they're, they have a familial hand shape and <laughs> appearance that uh, all the uncles that I've met and all of um, Roland's siblings had. It's like they have the same hands. They're, they've got kind of big pods of flesh on the fingertips that are great <laughs> for fretting like two strings at once if they want. Um, and they're, they're, they're uh, like very straight and kind of slender on the middle of the fingers, but the, then they, they have these big fleshy pads on the end. Hmm. And um, I was just amazed to see this, you know, we'd visited some of Roland's relatives in Maine and his uncles, uh, we played guitar with the cup and mandolin with a couple of them and their hands are just the same and they work the same They but they use them very economically. So Clarence is, hands and Roland's hands, you can watch them playing. They work, they look pretty much the same. Roland told me that Clarence's fingers were just a little bit longer than his. They both had relatively small hands compared to an average man's hand size, I guess. So I, I did have some idea of more of an idea of what might have been done in certain cases, but if I ever had any question, I took it to Roland and he would usually resolve it pretty well. So that's what we did. I laid the whole thing out and had it printed, chose paper. We recorded backup tracks and um, had the uh, instrumentals of Clarence's, uh, you know, kind of re-engineered to sound as good as they could. 
um, by Ben Surratt. Um, you may know Ben. I don't know. Yeah. He's a great recording engineer. I think he's been celebrated in several ways by IBMA. I think he's won Sound Engineer of the Year and so on. A wonderful fellow and a great engineer and so much fun to work with. So he, he did all the recording at his studio for us. And Missy Raines played bass on our backup tracks. We made a guitar, mandolin, and bass backup tracks to play along with and put those on the CDs, which uh, I'm <laughs> now CDs are kind of obsolete. And yeah. uh, I'm working on uh, getting it available as a download so oh, that uh, people don't have to play the CD. I will, I will have it, that available shortly. The music of Clarence and Roland, it's, you know, it's the stuff that matters in the, in the universe. You know, it's uh, Robert Fowler, Bob Fowler, uh, who was a bluegrass boy, once said to me that, you know, the sound of their music, it was love. Basically, it was just love. And, and he's right. You know, that's what it is. It, it's it's the good stuff that <laughs> everybody wants to connect to. It's that that great electric in, energy. You know, it's it's full of joy. It's joyful. And and how they play together as well. You know, just listening to yes. just that, that that TV workshop that Clarence did. Um and he's playing some stuff, and, and then as soon as Roland appears and they're playing together, the whole thing just lifts. Yeah, the ensemble playing, this is something that a lot of people don't rate on. You know, they don't talk about. But, yes, that band, the Kentucky Colonels, their ensemble playing was fantastic. It was just like they were just like an organism that worked together. And uh, they just did that because they were brothers and they played together forever. You know, Roland was six years older than Clarence and three years older than Eric. And he was, you know, the, uh, the ringleader and bought all the records and bought the uni the band outfits and, you know, worked at uh, the grocery store sacking groceries so he could buy more records and instruments. And their dad bought them instruments too, but Roland led them and, I think that, you know that having somebody else be the leader is a great deal for great thing for Clarence too because he didn't have to worry about the business end of anything. Yeah, he just uh, played and he had a pretty ideal setup, but he was very hard working at it too. You know, I mean, these guys, it just was in their soul to do it. That's what they wanted to do. That's all that. That's what mattered. Roland Roland used to ask his dad uh, if he could help him with some of the carpentry projects he was doing, but he said, "No, no, you guys need to keep your hands good for the music. You know, you, that's hmm. that's what you're going to do. You just practice your music." <laughs> wow. So, well, and we all we all get the benefit of that because that is it, totally what you say about the music. The music is always here, and the music is always alive, and it doesn't stop being that, however much time passes. They're still with you. They're still with you. And it's yes. that's the joy of music. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it, it just makes my eyes water <laughs> when I talk about it. So I'm sitting here wiping away tears. Hmm. That's a beautiful thing. And it's, it's sort of all of that loops back to the beginning when you were talking about the biographical stuff in the book. Because it is like music is not separate from who a person is. Music is very much part of who a person is. 
and their attempt to communicate that to the rest of the world. And there's something just so beautiful about all of that. The person, you can't take the person out of the music. Yeah, I found that the whole family story interesting. I mean, I'm sure they've got some musical genes because their whole, uh, on his dad's side, everybody played music in some way. And, you know, another thing about how they learned to play, it was like woven into family life. It was, it was a social phenomenon. It wasn't a performance-oriented task that they were doing at the beginning, mm. you know. They were doing it as a, it was a, you know, part of their culture. <laughs> and it was part of uh, social gatherings, family gatherings. So it served a different function for them in the beginning. You know, it's a more, more connected to you personally when it's part of your functioning in your social context, your, your family. Hmm. And, and extended family, they had a large, uh, Roland's father had, uh, was one of 13 siblings. Actually, wow. their mother had 17, but 13 made it to adulthood. And um, so that it was a really large family and many, many cousins and, and so on. So that's uh, something that they, a gift that they had that was part of their family life, not just, a, you know, I see this on TV and I want to do it like that guy did so I can be a big shot. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's something that runs throughout the bluegrass world. There's so many people who started out playing music with family, and so that mm -hmm. connection is much more of an immediate, or it's about going to a jam with your local community. It's not about this far-off, disconnected media version of music. Music is part of just the yeah. world around you, and so yeah. it's a different sort of connection, isn't it? Yeah, it's so that, you know, it's so the ants could dance. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, we, we visited Maine in... Uh, a few times visited his relatives several times up there. And on the first trip we made about 1990 that he and I made, um, we, we played some music and his aunts did dance and, uh, hmm. we put the picture, we put a picture of them in, in, uh, the mandolin book. Uh, they're, you know, they're dancing to the same tunes that they danced back, back when Roland was, and his brothers were kids. It was pretty cool. It, yeah. You know, because I I majored in anthropology and psychology, so I had a really big interest in their cultural background coming from, you know, Maine and from French Canadian people mm. ultimately. Now they yeah. they were they were all born in Maine and his mother was born in Maine. Their dad was born in New Brunswick and came into the US. You know, they never legally changed their name from LeBlanc. Oh really? It's his name was legally LeBlanc still, but uh, somehow he managed in the early fifties. In the fifties, he got a social security card under the name of White. I don't know how you do that. You couldn't do that anymore without the birth yeah. certificate backing it up. But so he had two names during his whole life. Wow. And that was Diane Bowsker. My next guest on this episode uh, is Michael Daves, who um, a great musician, great singer, great teacher, um, and sort of student, historian, scholar of all things bluegrass. Um, yeah, Michael's fascinating. And it's the first time I'd had a chance to properly talk to Michael as well, so that was really cool. Um, I very much enjoyed that. And he's just he's so, so full of insight and just really interesting to chat to. Um, so here comes Michael Daves. You said something on Instagram about, uh, and I really like the wording of this, you said 
that Clarence was your main guitar inspiration from when you first heard Appalachian Swing. And it didn't say influence, it said inspiration. And I like that's that right. because it's a very, mm-hmm. like, it's that's that's a meaningful bit of wording. Yeah, yeah. I've you know, talked to David Guru about that sometimes. That Yeah, influence is different than inspiration. Um, no one sounds like Clarence. You know, David has got a lot of that stuff, but, you know, David is David and, you know, uh, you know, no one has been able to, I think, replicate the sound and feel that, that Clarence got. And uh, certainly not me. Um, I avoided even trying for decades um, just because I listened to that music and it just seemed so magical. And like uh, what, uh, you know, that the timing, the quirks of timing and just like there are just things, subtle things about the delivery that were clear from the get go that, oh, this is only Clarence. This is, you know, you, you could kind of copy the notes, but it would never sound like Clarence because there's something so special about uh, how he delivers uh, what he plays, you know, the touch and especially the timing. So, um, yeah, so I think inspiration is, is right. I mean, I, I, I hear just such in Clarence, uh, just such sheer musicality and um, a playful musicality. And so uh, there's a real sense of humor to his playing without being like goofy, you know, but he's, he's a very mm-hmm. serious musician and expresses himself very seriously, but with a playfulness that like reminds me almost like, I don't know, like a little bit like Thelonious Monk and in, in jazz, you know, he, he was a very serious musician, but like, you know, he just, just like play two notes, dot, 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 you know, and almost like he's telling a joke. Um, but it just kind of creates this, this, just kind of openness about music that I think is really special. Um, so I first heard Clarence, uh, I was, I was a teenager. Uh, I was probably 15 or 16 and studying with, um, Ray Chesna, who's my guitar teacher in high school. And Ray was uh, from New York and actually had played in a, uh, had a, a bluegrass band that included like a 14 or 15 year old, uh, Bale Fleck, uh, in New York. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but anyways, Ray uh, was you know, a good bluegrass player, but also was really into like fingerstyle, like ragtime. He was kind of a specialist in, in fingerstyle blues and you know, Piedmont blues particularly. And he, he got me into a lot of that stuff, like you know, Blind Blake and also like Western Swing uh, and Charlie Christian, Django Reinhardt. Um, so, I mean, Ray presented kind of the whole kind of breadth of American traditional music and, and I, I kind of ended up approaching it somewhat chronologically. So kind of he, he, I would go to lesson every week and take home like a pile of CDs or cassettes and I would dub them all to tape. And that was my listening because this was the nineties and it was before <laughs> even like CDRs. But, um, uh, you know, Louis Armstrong, uh, you know, all the way kind of through, through to like the Stanley brothers or so, but, um, uh, so I took home Appalachian Swing and he's like, you need to know about Clarence. You know, he like there was he, he would always give me good music. But like when he gave me the Clarence, there was something he he was indicating that there was something really special about this. And so I kind of listened, you know, expecting it to be special. And it really, really was. Um, and um, as far as bluegrass at that point, you know, I listened to quite a bit of Stanley Brothers and Bill Monroe. I, I loved the Bill Monroe and Doc Watson uh, recordings uh, flat and scrugs, you know, like a lot of the classic stuff, but I, my interest at that time where I was definitely as, as a guitarist, I was really trying to understand what was going on with jazz music and be able to like play over chord changes. 
And um, I heard Clarence playing very straight ahead bluegrass, you know, like nine pound hammer. I'm a pilgrim in a very like classic bluegrass setting, but he was approaching it with, you know, this inventiveness of phrasing, like in the syncopation and like uh, variations of phrasing that reminded me a lot of Django Reinhardt, Charlie Christian, and like really what I liked about those. Also, he could play over changes, um, chord changes, which is not something that a lot of bluegrass players take very seriously. <laughs> like, I think a lot of bluegrass guitarists tend to be more kind of riff based, you know, lick, lick based players. They'll play blues licks and whatnot. So those things are natural to the guitar. But Clarence was not only very inventive with, with the phrasing and rhythm, but, uh, yeah, he really worked with the chord changes. He worked with melodies of the song, um, and very creatively. You could tell that even when he was playing something that wasn't the melody, that like the melody was still behind it. And, so there was something that was very sympathetic to me, you know, by hearing like him and Charlie Christian and Django Reinhardt in particular, and also Bob Wills's uh, guitar players like Junior Barnard and uh, Eldon Shamblin and, and uh, Tiny Moore on mandolin. Um, and uh, so I was just totally fascinated that that someone could be kind of bringing in these those sorts of incredible musical elements into a very straight ahead bluegrass tradition and it wasn't new grass. Like it wasn't, I was also listening to like strength and numbers and stuff like that. And so I kind of understood that there, there is a thing as new grass and you can expand those boundaries. But, um, Clarence was bringing this, yeah, this openness. And I would just say it's, a, it's a musical genius that is, you know, found in, you know, some of the best jazz players, you know, and he was bringing that into the bluegrass context. And I think I was really fascinated in that point. And, and that, it just hit me at a time in my musical development where that's what I was really interested in, you know, like the combination of traditional bluegrass. And then like, uh, the, you know, the, I really wanted to be able to play jazz, you know, I, I wanted to be able to play over changes and understand what was going on with modulations and, and all that and become an improviser. And I couldn't do it yet, but I was listening. <laughs> so in Clarence, uh, yeah, Clarence, yeah, embodied all of these things that I that I really liked about those other kinds of music in the bluegrass context, and and it just really stuck with me. And that's really interesting that um, that point about jazz because like it, there's two things that throws up is one at the point that Clarence was doing all this, you didn't have the half a century of bluegrass guitar licks that we now hear and everybody's playing because everybody's heard Doc and everybody's heard Tony, and he had, it was a different, slightly different time for just absorbing bluegrass licks. Right. Well, Clarence wasn't, yeah, he didn't have much to go on in terms of guitar. I mean, there was, uh, Don Reno played some, you know, great lead guitar stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he, Clarence grew up around, uh, Joe Mathis and, uh, Merle Travis. They were both out in California and, and, but they were not bluegrass. They were kind of, you know, country and rockabilly and swing. Um, but yeah, there was very little bluegrass guitar to go on. But I think that's for me, what one of the things that makes Clarence's playing so interesting is that he you can tell that he wasn't necessarily listening to guitarists he was listening to definitely banjo players like i think earl scruggs was probably his biggest influence um but he was also listening to well django uh clearly um i mean django's a guitar player but not a bluegrass uh musician at all um but uh then clarence was listening to fiddle players you know certainly his playing um really kind of took some steps forward when scotty stone then came out to LA and played with the colonels and, and Scotty was just, you know, a fantastic 
player and improviser and just this incendiary stage presence. And I think that, that kind of, uh, pushed Clarence along, but, um, yeah, I, I mean, that's, that's one of the things that I like about guitar in general is that it, the guitar is pretty good at, you, you can bring in elements of all the other instruments, not necessarily guitar. I mean, you can, I, I personally like to play a lot of Monroe mandolin style stuff on guitar. Um, and I like to cross pick, you know, in, or try to in a scrug style. <laughs> um, I like to play fiddle lines and try to get, you know, fiddle shuffle. I'm like, one of my favorite musicians is Tex Logan, the fiddler. And I, I really think about Texas pulsation on the fiddle when I play guitar. Um, so I'm very rarely thinking about guitar players. <laughs> and, and, and I saw in Clarence was, was, I think the same. And for Clarence, it was because there, there were none, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. he heard Doc Watson early on, but Doc, but Clarence was already playing lead by, by the time Doc came out to California. So I think Clarence's style developed independently of Doc's, but then, you know, there was definitely some influence there. You know, he played Doc's, you know, Beaumont rag. He called it Julius Finkbein's rag, but, um, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Um, and, uh, you know, Black Mountain rag, he, he, he played those things, but he was clearly on a path, you know, to be lead guitar player before Doc was in the picture. So, yeah, he, yeah. he was listening so much to other instruments and, you know, when you talk about Scruggs, you know, the, the, the banjo is the ultimate syncopated instrument, you know, because all those three note rolls on against four, four. And so Clarence really internalized that both not, not even just when he was doing cross picking, but you know, his lines would be very angular and like accent at kind of a similar place that a banjo player's lines would accent, which is, you know, stuff is crazy, you know, especially if you try to like take it out off of the banjo and onto another <laughs> instrument. It's just it's really special. So. Yeah. And that, the other point just, that sort of jazz influence is that idea of um, playing over the changes, but that there's that sort of old joke about how do you make an old jazz guy happy, like occasionally quote the melody. And you get that, <laughs> like you, you were saying with Clarence's playing, is that if you wandered in in the middle of a song and he was taking a solo, you'd probably be able to work out what the tune was. And with a lot of guitar yeah. players, as soon as the solo starts, they're checking in all just sorts of stuff and you wouldn't licks. necessarily know which song yeah. it was. <laughs> yeah, just, right. and, it, and that's quite a strong element of Clarence's playing. Yeah, very, very much so. Um, yeah, this combination of you can really kind of hear that he was holding the melody in his mind, even when he was playing something else. But um, and that combined with just this playfulness, this inventiveness, this willing. And that, mm. that was, I think, something that kind of comes from jazz improvisers, you know, just this this quest of like free expression with the instrument, you know, of, of being, you know, expressing something in the moment that's kind of, you know, unique and, and of the essence. And you really feel that in Clarence's playing that he's he's uh you know really has this kind of feeling of that he's exploring um and that holds true now i when i first listened to clarence or for a long time when i listened to clarence i kind of i'd hear his playing and like well, wow that sounds improvised I'm, I'm assuming i'm sure that's improvised but then i started hearing a lot more live recordings uh bootlegs and whatnot and you hear a lot of the same you know melodic devices and rhythmic devices over again so clearly he's like kind of working with some of the same stuff over and over again he's maybe just implementing in a little different way here and there so it's not like he's fully he's not reinventing the wheel but he's expressing it even when he's playing a lick or a phrase that he's played before he plays it with this this remarkable freshness and it's like so in the moment um and is again it's coming out of this idea of playfulness you know that is playful you know, he's, he's just 
delighting himself. It sounds like, you know, with like the way he messes around with rhythm and he seems to be delighting himself with the way he's interacting with the other musicians in the moment, you know, mm. playing off the other musicians and, and that just sense of delight uh, and playfulness, I think is just really, really fascinating to me. And that that's, I think in, in the category of influence, you know, this is something that I've, I think tried to draw on certainly in, in I think some of my better musical collaborations, like, you know, with Chris Thiele and some of those, like we're, there's kind of a similar, uh, uh, you know, commitment to just kind of responding in the moment to whatever the other one does. And I, I think Clarence is all about that. And, and that, that I think made an impression on me early on. Um, it's funny, as soon as you were talking about playfulness there, it put me in mind of there's a version of If I Should Wander Back Tonight that's on that record you did with Chris. And the solos, mm -hmm. both the mandolin solos and the guitar solos on that track are some of my favourite solos on anything ever. And they because they are exactly as you say, they're sort of playful. Oh, wow, taking taking an energy and just... like The first time I heard that record, I remember laughing out loud at one point in one of the breaks, just as a kind of, oh, they went there, brilliant. And it's there's there's and some of it's rhythm, some of it's <laughs> the energy, some of it's the note choice. But it's like I can hear you both smiling as you play it because it sounds like it's fun. Oh yeah, it is fun and, and surprising. And, and Chris uh, is one of just the quickest musical thinkers that I've ever worked. With. I mean, he obviously he's fast on the mandolin, but I mean his mind works fast. And it's like if I'm thinking about doing something, he's almost like sniffed that out in advance and he's like he's on it he's ready to respond to it almost like i'm thinking it and he's like he's there with it so this there's the the certain kind of delight of just having that sort of spontaneous musical conversation and and you know the musicians with that sort of ability to like process things in the moment that quickly and respond you know is is, is so rare and uh yeah I, I i get that feeling from 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 clarence too and you there's that word conversation you just used and and like, it's, I think it's, I've, I've mentioned this before in other conversations with people, the idea that improvising is a conversation, both with the tune and with the people you're playing with. And so that thought that you have, like right. maybe when you're a younger musician or a less experienced musician, you presume improvisation is just completely making things up on the spot. And actually, it's like a spoken <laughs> yeah. conversation in that we, if you've got a wide vocabulary and a command of language and you've had a lot of conversations, you can... Like most of what I say to you is going to be phrases that anybody else would, but occasionally you find a way of phrasing something and you go, oh, I like that. And so you use it again and you drop it in whether it's relevant. And it's just, you're not completely making words up as you go along, but you're using right. what you, what you know and your collected vocabulary that pleases you and then see right. where it fits in the moment. Right. And with, uh, you know, Clarence, the way he engages with the tune that he's playing over again, I think is very much like what, uh, is expected of any jazz musician. Uh, you know, in, in jazz music, typically like someone plays the head or the melody to the song once, and then just it's a jumping off point for improvisation, but, and you might not hear the melody other than like maybe in little quotes here and there, but one the part of the discipline of playing jazz well, um, is certainly in an ensemble is that everyone in the ensemble it knows exactly where you are in relation to that template of the song. You know exactly what the melody note is, what the chord is. And so in that, that like the ghost of the song is strongly shared amongst whoever's playing. So 
and then they might play things, you know, they might like lay over polyrhythms or play, you know, do chord substitutions or play, you know, some inventive stuff that's not the melody. But even when it's not the melody, the melody is, is very much there in internalized. And, and that, uh, I think it, it really feels like that it was very much like that for, for Clarence, you know, when he was playing around and like he would you know, play with rhythm, he'd play these things that were like so out of time. It kind of, it's like sounded like things were falling down. He's like falling down the stairs, but then he lands on his feet. And like at the end of it, you realize that he knew exactly where he was all along. <laughs> like yeah. that sort of deep internalization of what he's playing over of the time and of the song that he's playing over is, is really clear to me. And Clarence is playing that uh, even when he's playing something different, he knows exactly where he is. And I would say no one plays around in, at least in bluegrass world plays around with time like Clarence did, you know, the way he would, you know, he'd like start overlaying triplets. He'd do like quintuplets. He would play something that seemed like it was totally out of time for a moment, but then all of a sudden it was like right back, you know, he, he would like find some downbeat and just land on it definitively. And like, you know, he, he, he knew what was going on all along and he was just kind of fooling us. And so that, uh, I think that that level of internalization of the music that one is playing is just so rare. And, um, you know, uh, in bluegrass music, it's, it's, I think it's yeah, people who improvise, you know, who like take breaks, you know, rather than not necessarily like playing the scripted melody. Um, yeah, you know, uh, it's so rare, you know, but, but Clarence had it in spades and that's always, uh, drawn me in that. And it's interesting because you were saying, I think you were 15 when you first heard that Appalachian swing record and Clarence wasn't that much older than that when he recorded it. Like, you know, to yeah, I think so he was 18 when that, that record was made, which is totally amazing. Um, I had the interview to, or I had the opportunity to talk to Roland White and his brother about, about recording that. And, uh, and, uh, you know, one of the things about Appalachian Swing, especially if you listen to like a track like Nine Pound, uh, their Nine Pound Hammer, they're, they're weaving in and out of each other's melodies. So like Roland will be playing a melody he's like taking the lead, but then Clarence is like behind him. He's like playing this whole other solo and he's like actually playing something very similar to the solo he's about to play when it's his turn. But like somehow it fits together. It doesn't feel like what Clarence is playing is like interrupting Roland. It's just, it's almost like great Dixieland jazz when you have like multiple melodies kind of weaving in and out in, in mm -hmm. real time. And it's, it's totally improbable that they're able to pull this off. And, you know, I asked Roland, like, did you ever rehearse that stuff or, think about like how that was going to go together. And he's like, no, we just did it. <laughs> like, uh, I, I don't know. Maybe his, when I talked to him asking him about that, it was, there was some cognitive decline going. So I, there may, it may, it may be that there used to be a more of a story there, but he sounded pretty, uh, pretty sure that no, we, we didn't work this out. It just, it just happened that brotherly mind meld. Um, but and that that requires a proper two-way bit of listening, doesn't it? Because otherwise that's just mm -hmm. one of you imposing something on somebody else and just walking right. all over their territory. And so many people do this, do that, and they just play, and it sounds like they're playing over other people. But there's not a hint of that, you know. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, like, and then, like, something like uh, Listen to the Mockingbird, um, you know, that Roland's mm -hmm. playing a melody, um, and... Uh, dun, 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 dun. 
And then Clarence is in the back going. And so like that, I mean, that, that's crazy. Like if someone tried to play that, like on, while I was soloing, I'm like, what are you doing? Like, that's, that's so rude. But then you hear how they do it and it's just, it all fits. And uh, you know, chalk it up to them just having played music all their lives, you know, together and just, but it does reflect an internalization that I think all musicians are seeking on, on one level of another, you know, like when you play music, you have to, you know, to learn whatever you're doing, you have to kind of think it through, you have to puzzle it out, but like where you always want it to get is, is to that level of being unconscious and, and, and you know, fully internalized and, you know, so that you can, execute things are on the fly that you're not like having to overthink and and i always get the feeling you know of hearing them play it's like that with a lot of brother duets but i think you know you rarely get that instrumentally the way that you got with with clarence and roland yeah it's often the vocal you know, the, side of that that, that right people talk yeah they're singers yeah. that yeah i mean you hear like the monroe brothers or the leuven brothers or the stanley's you get like you know things are just kind of coming together um, you know, kind of on the fly, just out of that deep internalization. But yeah, it's really rare on, on the instrumental side. So um, that's always really appealed to me about their music. And you got you got to credit Roland. Um, now we're talking about Clarence, but you wouldn't have Clarence without Roland because, uh, you know, Roland was older, like what, seven or eight years older, I think. And so when Clarence was five, you know, and wanted to play the guitar, Evidently, you know, he couldn't, the Clarence was always small, but like, especially at age five. And so like, he couldn't actually get his both arms around the guitar. So they'd switch off, like one would fret and the other would strum and then they'd switch. And so like, uh, and Roland was already playing. So like Clarence grew up, uh, Clarence never knew life without Roland there playing music. So it's, it's, uh, you know, I don't think he wouldn't have gotten that sort of, depth of development in Clarence with, if not for Roland, you know, just being there and just always, you know, supplying music. And then, you know, just the way they played together and supported one another. Like I always, you know, I love Clarence's playing with, you know, the, the birds and with Mule Skinner. Um, but it, it's the best stuff is always with Roland when he's playing off of Roland, when he's reacting to, you know, being supported by, Roland, yeah, you know, th those are those are those are the, the peaks. <laughs> there's that um, video that's on YouTube of this sort of masterclass with is it Bob Baxter who's sort of interviewing him mm -hmm. and, and they play a couple of tunes together and then Roland comes out and plays with them and it just all kind mm -hmm. of lifts off slightly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. The I think the interviewer there is seems very like nervous about interview like he's he seemed like he's sort of intimidated by like i'm and i'm interviewing my hero and i don't know how to handle myself basically so i think uh the, i think he seemed to respond by kind of focusing a lot of what was going on on himself probably out of just a you know <laughs> a nervousness i mean gosh yeah if i had to interview and you know back up clarence white i'd be probably freaked out too but you know <laughs> It's, it's a weird dynamic, but then, yeah, when Roland shows up, it's like, you know, it's Clarence, you know, doing, doing his thing and 
Yeah, it's cool to get to see yeah. it. Um, and you kind of done a deep dive on a couple of the records and taught them yeah. in, in classes. Yep. Um, and did you, mm-hmm. like, was that part of that, was that to do a deep dive into it for yourself or had you sort of discovered some stuff that you hadn't heard before by doing that and sort of wanted to teach it or how did that come about? Well, I mean, that that all came about during the pandemic where, you know, I, I had previously been teaching a lot of in-person guitar classes in addition to, you know, private lessons, but I would, I would do, you know, group classes in New York and uh, there'd be kind of a, an intro class and then we'd do one kind of on brother duets, but like it was, you know, it wasn't like too specific, you know, because I just have to make it be not so specific that no one will sign up. But once during the pandemic, when all the teaching went online, I realized, wow, I can uh, use this opportunity. I can connect with anyone all over the world. So if I want to teach on Manzanita or Appalachian Swing, I can find people in Australia and Finland and whatnot who want to like do that deep dive. And I'm like, maybe this is the time. Now I had avoided really learning any Clarence White music, despite him being my favorite guitarist since I was 15, despite him probably being the primary, you know, the most, the most influential or inspiring. We, we talk about (laughs) the most inspiring guitarist to me. Like I, I, I'd always heard it and be like, yeah, I could learn it, but like, I could never really learn it just, just, you know, just out of respect, just for the uniqueness of his timing and touch and all that. I'm like, I'd rather just like leave that something that I just listen to and let it wash over me and, you know, don't try to analyze. Um, but after however many decades of that, I'm like, you know what? I've had however many decades of just letting it wash over me. I think I, I, I feel like I can, you know, dive into this and that there would be some benefit because yes, we're never going to get his sense of timing when we try to play that music, but there is so much about, again, his phrasing, his note choice, his rhythm style that could be really beneficial and is really unique. Um, and so, um, I decided that was the time to, to dive into it. And so I taught a, a whole six week zoom class on Appalachian swing and, you know, did a lot of transcriptions of his lead and rhythm. And that was a sort of a revelation to me to, you know, to get in there and realize, you know, what uh, he, he was actually doing, which was just, you know, so subtle and, and so crazy. And honestly, another factor uh, is that I, I feel like, you know, Tony Rice has been like the dominant guitar player of the last 40 years and, you know, for good reason. Um, and, uh, I'm, and I'm sure you're exploring the, the, here, the connection between Clarence and Tony and how, you know, Tony idolized Clarence and, you know, tried in vain to play like Clarence, but realized he couldn't early on and ended up sounding like Tony Rice. And so that's, that's pretty cool. And that they, you know, they met when what, like Tony was nine, Clarence was 15 or something like that. I think, you know, it was, mm. it was, it's a very cool connection. And then there's the guitar and all that. But, um, since Clarence died so young and hadn't like made definitive recordings like Doc Watson and Tony Rice and Norman Blake all have, I think, you know, finding the really good Clarence stuff has been a little challenging and even Appalachian swing, like was out of print for a lot of years. And, you know, I think some of the versions that were available were like sonically not good, but then a little while ago, uh, you know, there was like an, a 40th anniversary ish, a reissue that like, actually sounds really good. But it was sold on Sierra, which is this independent label. And, um, any point being is it's not like widely known. Um, and 
you know, I, I really want to share actual clearance with, with people. Um, because I think a lot of times people's understanding and idea of Clarence and what he's about is filtered through Tony because people pay so much attention to Tony and Tony's had a lot of instructional material and he'll be like, Oh, here, this is a Clarence lick. And he's, he's played like, Oh God, now I, I know what a Clarence lick is. But it's not the same when you hear Clarence play it. Um, you know, so I, I, I think just, I think there's a real lack of, you know, common knowledge and access to, to what Clarence was really about. Um, and uh, I, I just thought that would be a good thing to share. Um, and, you know, I, once I got over the the hurdle of the willingness to transcribe it, I know I have the skills to actually transcribe it. <laughs> and I was able to do some, uh, you know, detailed transcriptions, which I know uh, Russ, you know, did back in the 70s. But hmm. honestly, we have better digital tools now. It's like I, I can and a really good set of headphones. So like, <laughs> there are some technological advantages to transcribing that stuff now compared to in the seventies, which I think he was doing that from a tape recorder, you know, um, maybe at half speed or something, but, uh, I, you know, I thought it was maybe a fresh look. And also I wanted to, to, um, really explore Clarence's rhythm playing, which was, you know, extravagant. And like Tony is kind of like the main event in a way, you know, like, mm. you know, like to Tony Rice never played a lead. He would still be, you know, one of the greatest guitar players ever to live just, just on the base of his rhythm playing. And I think Clarence is like that too. I mean, Clarence is a great, great lead player, but um, I don't know if David shared with you the story of uh, Clarence, uh, you know, or David's dad saying, Hey, Clarence, man, your leads are really coming along. Did, did he talk about that? Where, yeah. So uh, Clarence yeah. sort of said, yeah, it's okay, but I put my rhythm playing up against anybody's. Yeah. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> yep. And uh, yeah, I think that's, that's that's exactly right so and i think that's um, great because as guitarists like 95 percent of what we do is play rhythm and yet right? you know, when, I, when i did the tony rice interviews like pretty much everybody i spoke to whether it was like bob minner or chris eldridge or whoever they all said i love tony's lead playing but if i was forced to choose i would take the rhythm playing every day you know and it's yeah right yeah it's, it's really a special skill and it's kind of you know it's more felt than than heard i think one of the best guitar players working today is del mccurry and you know how many leads does del mccurry take <laughs> yeah and it is that thing that often in a band context the guitar gets lost which is why i mean it's why i love records like church street blues or you know the record you do with chris Thiele or skags and rice or where you can actually hear what the guitar is doing um, and actually, the, that mm -hmm. that mix for the live in Sweden record with the New Kentucky Colonels, you can actually hear the guitar pretty loud. It doesn't get lost, and you can hear Clarence. It really was well recorded by someone who was there for Clarence. Yeah, so mm -hmm. it's 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 prominent. Also, with the Appalachian Swing um, recording, that one's really good to listen to for rhythm guitar because it was recorded to three track style. So like 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 old Beatles recordings, you know, where you have like the drums like all in one channel like old soul recordings where you have like the, the rhythm, the horn sections on one side and the drums on the other side. So that recording is like that where Clarence is panned all the way to the right channel. Roland is panned all the way to the left channel. So you have full sep stereo separation between them and, you know, the bass and the banjo is up the middle. You can just pop out an earbud and, and listen to what you want. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, definitely recommend find, find like, the 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 good re, you know the reissue the remastering of Appalachian Swing because it was done really well they went back to the original three track tapes and just made a really hi fi uh, you know transfer of it and it's, 
gorgeous. And that, that sort of thing you were saying about really wanting to put Clarence in front of people, like that's kind of the journey I'm on with this really is I spent, because Doc Watson turned 100 earlier this year, I spent a lot of time talking about Doc. And then with the yep. Church Street Blues stuff, I spent a lot of time talking about Tony. And it's like it sort of came out of a bit of a curiosity. Of, there's so many conversations about Clarence, but like you say, he wasn't around for long enough to really put out those definitive recordings and to be here to talk about any of it. And, and so I like I yeah. I was curious to find out more about this sort of figure and and his influence because his influence is huge. It, yeah, it, it influence is huge without people like knowing all that much about what he was actually doing. So it's yeah, I think it's great that there. Thank you for you know. For for you know, putting the story out there and you know, highlighting really one of I think just the great musicians of the twentieth century. I think not just in bluegrass, he's just you know such a natural and so expressive, so original, and such a master of timing. Like uh, just it's just absurd. <laughs> like, and that's one of the things that I do. Like when I first got into bluegrass guitar, you hear the flashy stuff and the and, mm-hmm. and you think, oh, that's brilliant, and then. It's, I think it was when I first heard Russ Barenberg and you realized that just a bit of variety of the melody, whether mm-hmm. you place the note differently or change one thing or just yeah. turn something a tiny bit from where it was. Yeah. There's a whole world of improvising that is just playing around with the source material that's not going sure. too far from it. And, you know, and here in Clarence, it might be a busier version of that and he's cross-picking and he's choosing where to place those beats to drag your ear away far enough that he can then bring you right back. But it's that mm-hmm. is you know that just playing with the material is mm-hmm. just is just almost so exciting to listen to. I think another another guitarist I would add to that uh, conversation would be Larry Sparks, who's you know not the flashiest guitar player, but just totally unique, very sparse, and he's always playing the song. You know, mm. not always literally the melody, but he's another one who's who's always fully internalize the song and when he plays a guitar break you you know what song it's over and um yeah not not a lot of hot licks but it's some of the best stuff there is so <laughs> i think clarence and larry are might, might be my two favorite uh, bluegrass guitar players <laughs> for the for, for those reasons and and this is like just purely a conversation framed about clarence's flat picking there's a whole other world of telecaster playing and b benders mm-hmm. and innovation and you know just beautiful playing on some of those Birds records and yep. there's a whole, you know if, if you took his lead playing and his flat picking and his rhythm playing out of it, he still like had this huge huge influence in a whole other world in a very short life. Yeah, he invented multiple styles, you know, and that and I mean you can say that about Bill Monroe. I mean he invented bluegrass, but you know it's kind of the he's also in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, <laughs> for, I think for good reason. Yeah, uh, but but yeah, Clarence. It, yeah, so so yeah, inventive in at least two <laughs> directions, and who knows? You know, that's that's part of the 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 compelling and tragic thing about it is who knows what he would have done? You know, because he was about to embark on a solo career and had just started on a record that you know the, the tracks that had been released that weren't finished, so we don't really know what his vision was for those. You know, um, you know. Yeah, could yeah. have been a flop, but you know he could have had a a whole new vision. You know, you we, see, never got you to, know we, we never got to find out, and that's the that's the real shame, isn't it? Is who knows right. what the, and, the last sort of fifty years could have produced? Totally, yeah. And you know his you know Telecaster playing and the B bending aside, uh, 
you know, just Clarence was really there on the ground floor of the whole kind of country rock, you know, American, you know, cosmic American thing. You know, he, he, you know, Graham Parsons gets a lot of the credit for, for being the trailblazer, but Clarence and Graham were, you know, they were, uh, you know, they worked together. Um, and, uh, I think Clarence, at least he, he had as much to do with kind of bringing those styles and those, those worldviews together as, as, as Graham Parsons did, um, mm. it, um, so add that to the list of contributions. And that was my chat with Michael Daves. Next up is Tim Stafford to round this off. Um, a lovely sort of thoughtful chat about Clarence with, with Tim. Um, always enjoy talking to Tim about anything, um, but particularly about guitar, because that's, you know, he's, he knows so much of this stuff and his insight and his, you know, his, his sort of take on it is always fascinating. Um, Tim plays a bit of guitar in this which I didn't know he was going to do. And generally all these interviews are set up with a mic for the voice. I don't, we don't set up a separate instrument mic because people tend not to play, but every now and again, people want to, you know, um, just illustrate something. And Tim did, and because it, the mic was set up for vocals, it doesn't pick the guitar up particularly well, but I've left it in because I think it's really interesting. And I think it's very um, useful to hear, even though it's not, you know, the most high fidelity or whatever. So I've left that. And as I did with the Michael Davis one, you just heard there's some bits in there as well. Um, but yes, that is, this is the final bit of this. I hope you've enjoyed these two. Here comes Tim Stafford. I think uh, the first time I heard Clarence was uh, a random uh, radio cut from uh, Appalachian Swing, which would have been in the about 10 years after it was recorded. It came out in 64, I think. And um, so it have been about 74. And... I, it was another kind of thing like Tony. When I heard it, I was like, is this a guitar? And it was just a man on a guitar doing this, uh, these duets on, uh, one of them was nine pound hammer, you know, and I thought, God, I've heard this song a lot, but not played like this cat on a guitar. I mean, what is he doing there? And to this day, I, I go back and listen to that version of that song. And I'm like, and John Henry is another one, played out of C position, you know. And I'm like, how in the world did you come up with this style, you know? Uh, and I've read a lot about Clarence's uh, style and how he, he developed it. And I'm thinking of the time in California when they were kids and they were playing with Joe Mathis. And evidently Joe was a big influence on Clarence and how to hold the pick how to play fast, um, and um, also things like that three-finger G chord, you know, that everybody plays in bluegrass now. I think Clarence is the one who popularized that for bluegrass players. Joe was the one who showed it to him. And uh, I think Marty Stewart may have mentioned that. And uh, now since Tony did it following Clarence, it's made its way into bluegrass proper, you know. But... But you listen to Clarence play something like uh, John Henry, you know, and uh, I mean, that stuff is just, it's like the timing of it, you know, and I, I'm listening to it, I'm like, how do you start by syncopating so many notes like that, you know? I mean, my, 
most people start the opposite place. And it's like Clarence was immediate inclination was, uh, you know, oh, I'm going to start syncopating right away, you know. Stuff is just, it still blows my mind to hear it, you know. And that's, that's my approximation of Clarence. I, I never learned that stuff, note for note, like a lot of these guys did. But, um, golly, and I love, you know, like, uh, like he did uh, for Prince of the Snow. Uh, just got this lilting feel to it that that just encapsulates the lyric and uh, when I heard that on that Neil Skinner record you know I was like oh my gosh man this is this is so amazing and I know when we started uh, the boys in the band was a band I played with in East Tennessee back in the 70s and with Barry Bells and Adam Steffi and uh we all three joined Allison's band. We were in a group called Dusty Miller in between. But we, when we traveled around, man, we had a live Clarence, uh, a group of live Clarence recordings. We listened to that stuff nonstop. And just uh, there was one collection that came out on Rounder that we listened to a lot, the one that had When You're Smiling and uh, a few other things like that. And uh, he was one of those guys, man, that he could channel – Django and he could channel Doc Watson and it still came out Clarence. It's like he had, he had no, no limit to what he could do, you know, and he proved that when he picked up a Telecaster and put that B bender on, you know, and just blew the whole rock and roll world away when he did that. I mean, there's still legendary stories about them playing these outdoor rock festivals and the, the front row, all of these guitar players would jam up and just actually, you know, make a mosh pit, just trying to look at what he was doing with that B bander and how that worked and how he played. Uh, and uh, I don't know, to me, the, the older I get, the more amazing Clarence's playing gets to me. And uh, I mean, obviously, everybody loves Tony's playing and it's, and it's still ground zero for me, but I also know what Clarence Smith to Tony. So, you know, uh, there's, there's that. So. It's funny that little, that little kickoff you just played when you picked up your guitar there, you know, those first few notes of that nine pound hammer and you can draw a line between that and church street blues and you can hear, you know, that what, what connects the two. And, you know, if you didn't know, Tony was influenced by Clarence and somebody played you those two things. You go, Oh, well, you know, and yet they're totally different as well. Totally. And, and, uh, the guy that really though is, is such a connecting force in all that is Doc Watson. Cause Clarence admits that, you know, after he heard Doc, his, his playing changed completely. And Tony mentions in the book, first time he heard the, that one record of Doc's Vanguard record, um, 
he said it was like God had come down and was hitting a chord on a D28, you know. He made a huge impact on Tony, too, Doc did. So, um, but I got a feeling that Clarence was already playing some stuff before that, too, that it just caused him to focus what he was doing in a different direction and caused him to play things uh, that he didn't before. And, you know, I, I definitely hear Doc Licks in, uh, in Appalachian Swing, you know, when he does uh, John Henry, you know. Uh, I hear all those licks. That's, uh, he's, he even does that rhythm when he's playing behind Roland's leads, you know, when they're doing duets, you know. Uh, Yeah, so um, it's it's really bizarre to hear that that stuff, but I can. It's obvious where it came from. It's a doc doc thing, you know. But uh, but still, yet yeah, and like I said, anytime he did anybody, it, it came out Clarence uh, when he played, and I don't think people saw Clarence enough to realize that Tony's playing was so dependent on it, and it really from the right hand technique. And the left hand, too, he, he evidently played the same way Tony did with that fulcrum tonic kind of thing where he put the thumb on the back of the neck of the guitar like a classical player. And then his right hand very much played with the thumb the way Tony did as well, rather than back and forth like the rest of us trying to do, you know, flopping around. <laughs> and as you're talking about, like, everything came out of Clarence, it's extraordinary how, like, that, uh, Appalachian swing record, like how young he was, and yet such a fully formed musical personality. Isn't that crazy? I mean, of course, he'd been playing since he was like, what, three or four. I mean, he was very young when they put a guitar in his hands. Um, if you got a chance to read uh, Bob Black's book on Roland, uh, it's called Mandolin Man. There's a lot of recollection about the early history of the brothers and what, what their family was like when he remembers the exact day that Clarence walked through the house and happened to see Roland playing for the first time, just and it hit him. And he stood there and stared at him. And he said, here, play yourself. You know, and he handed him the guitar. <laughs> What's this? You know, I mean, stuff like that is so cool in that book, but um, yeah, they, I don't know. They just sort of grew up together and they influenced each other. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that Roland's plan really influenced Clarence. And uh, he was the older brother. And um, there was something about his approach, too, that helped crystallize that thing in Roland. And, and Clarence has said, that said, mess around with the time when you get a chance. You know, play the syncopation. Make people wonder what you're doing there. Because Roland did that too, you know. Roland was a very underrated musician. He was a great man player. Just uh, he had his own style too. And it uh, it's kind of like Clarence playing the mandolin. You know, when you hear Roland play, especially on some of those those things. But, yeah, I think Clarence was what? What was he, 18? when uh, Or 19 when they did uh, uh, Appalachian Swing. That's just mind-blowing, you know. It really is. It's just, 
to consider what he did that was uh, so creative and such a unique style to be created at that age. So it's such a, like a relatively short career to fit so much into, in terms of like such a strong style of flat picking um, and all the innovation on the electric guitar ended up being 29. like the second longest serving member of the birds <laughs> after Roger McGuinn. And like, you That's know, crazy. he was 29 when he died. You know, I mean, you talk about packing a lot into a short life and, and just really tragically cut short. You always wonder what tra- he would have done if he had, if that hadn't happened. If he, if he hadn't gotten uh, killed so tragically so young, then he, who knows what he would have accomplished, you know? Um, mm. uh, it's just really, really hard to say. Um, but, um, you know, when I think of complete guitar player, I think of Clarence White. I don't think anybody's ever approached it. His complete mastery of the, of the instrument in so many different styles. You know, um, just he was so good at whatever he did. And, uh, he was so good that people just didn't realize how good he was. I mean, everybody thought he was great, but they didn't. We're still just figuring out. And that's it. That's the end of our tribute to Clarence White. I hope you've enjoyed this. Um, there's so much more we could have chatted about. We didn't really get into his electric playing, his time with the birds. Um, I sort of that is also a whole other. You could spend three hours talking about that. Um, but thanks to all my guests. Thanks to everybody who's taken part in these. I really hope you've enjoyed them. I I know I said this all the time, but I'm going to say it again. I get so much out of doing these longer form, multi guest sort of deep dives. And there's some more of these to come. I'm working on a couple of things for the end of this year and early next year. Um, but yeah, I hope you've enjoyed these. Thanks for listening if you've made it this far. Um, I will see you next time with some more Bluegrass Chat. Have a great week and happy picking. Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins, making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s. Visit collingsguitars.com and find out why.